everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a wonderful show for you today. We have two people making their debuts on this show. So wow, are things going to happen? Things are really going to move and shake for these guests. They're going to get that Katie Helper Show bump. I just, of course, they're very esteemed individuals on their own terms. And we will be talking to none other than artist Adam Broomberg, who is an artist, activist, and educator. He currently lives and works in Berlin. And we're going to talk to him about Germany's campaign against him. And we talked last week about this, actually. We mentioned him when we were talking about Roger Waters and mentioned Roger Waters when we were talking about the way that our guest last week had been canceled over criticizing Israel. So here's another example. What makes it especially interesting, although not unique, is that in this case, we have Germans telling a Jewish artist that he's an anti-Semite. And then after we speak to Adam Bloomberg, we're going to be speaking to Bryce Green, who is a writer, and he's going to be talking to us about the latest in the Nord Stream pipeline explosion, as well as a piece that he wrote about the way that Facebook protects Nazis in order to maintain the proxy war. So before I bring on our first guest, though, I have to remind everyone, please do like this stream. It's an easy way to support the show, uh, fight back against the algorithmic suppression Make sure that as many people see this as possible. And it's really important, especially with these stories where people are being canceled. Literally, as we'll uh, soon learn, Adam's show, artistic show, was shut down. Uh, This is something that the world needs to know about so that the people who cancel people and shut them down and censor them and smear them feel like they can't actually do it. We have to make it so that they are held accountable and that there's a pain point when they do that. Not physical pain, obviously, just a disincentive. So please do like the stream. Just give it a thumbs up. Also, please subscribe. If you don't already subscribe, we're at almost at 86,000. I think we should get to 86,000 by the end of the week. 86,000 subscribers. All you have to do to subscribe is you press subscribe and then you hit the bell. That way you won't ever miss a stream. And of course, if you can, you can support the show at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show for just $1 a month. That's $12 a year. You get to make the show happen. We can't do the show without your support, literally, not just saying that. We really couldn't do the show without your support because it's not that anyone's getting rich on the show, but I need to be able to pay people who work on the show. And for $5 a month, you get exclusive interviews, which are really great. So just some recent ones you'll get is an interview that I did with Brianna Joy Gray, an extended chat with Christian Parenti, where we talk about his father, the great Michael Parenti. And you'll be able to get this full stream if you are a Patreon supporter. If you're watching live, you're in luck. You get to see the full stream. But if you're watching later and you want to see the full extended interview, then become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, you can become YouTube members. Anyway, all ways that you can support this show. And we're going to bring in our first guest. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about him. Adam Brubenberg was born in Johannesburg. He's an artist, activist, and educator. He currently lives and works in Berlin. He's on the faculty of the MA Photography and Society program at the Royal Academy of Art, The Hague, which he co-designed. His work is held in major public and private collections, including Center Pompidou, Noma, the Stedelijk Museum, Tate, Yale University Art Gallery, 
at Victoria and Albert Museum. So, without any further ado, welcome, Adam. Hey, nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. So, tell us about what you are facing right now. You are, as I mentioned, a Jewish artist. You're living in Germany. German officials have labeled you an anti-Semite, and they've canceled your latest show, which was supposed to happen next month. So what happened? Tell us what happened. Uh, what happened is I buried my mother over the new year and took time off and kind of went offline and took some time out to grieve. And when I returned from that period, I there was a kind of tsunami of emails alerting me to the fact that I was being referred to in basically every on and offline newspaper or kind of news outlet in Germany. And I was being called, I think it was a hateful anti-Semite encourages terrorism against Jews. Now, this is, this is like 10 days after burying my Jewish mother who had firsthand experience of the Holocaust. So one of the weirdest twists of logic and kind of um, moral uh, puzzles that I've ever experienced in my life. I, I, I guess what that, you know, my Palestinian friends say, welcome, you know, this is our daily experience is being gaslit in this way, where you're made to kind of doubt your own kind of logic or your own sense of intuition. I'm sorry about your mother and my condolences. What was her relationship to the Holocaust? So I've got the kind of the makeup of, you know, if I was a minestrone soup, like the ingredients that are put into that soup are quite interesting. And they, they, they give me an interesting podium from which to talk to these issues. These issues being Jewish identity, its relationship to the state of Israel, Palestine, things like that. And so all four of my grandparents come from Lithuania, that region. My father's parents came at the turn of the century. My mother's in the early 30s had just escaped the Holocaust, right? They didn't win the lottery because, you know, boats went to America, boats went to Scotland. They landed up in apartheid South Africa. I mean, some would say they did win the lottery because they went very quickly from the status of the bottom feeder as the Jew to being white people and suddenly um, enjoying all the kind of privilege that that change of status provided. Um, and so I was born in 1970 in South Africa in the midst of apartheid. And by the time I was a teenager, I had like three older siblings who conscientized me and they were politically involved. Um, and so I became an anti-apartheid activist. Um, and so that the late 80s was the real kind of what was known as the struggle. Um, that was really uh, the height of the struggle until Mandela was released in 1990 and negotiations started until the elections in 94. Uh, um, but I left there, I left South Africa before there was still military conscription. There was still apartheid. Um, I landed up in Italy Berlusconi came to power, and Berlusconi, if you look back 
on on his rise to power was kind of the first incarnation of this kind of populist fascist language. And you watched how he brought up all the media, literally the vocabulary of the entire nation kind of diminished, right? I left at that point to England and lo and behold, Brexit and Boris Johnson arrived. So a couple of days after the referendum for Brexit, which was like soul-destroying, I had an exhibition in Berlin, and I remember we were sitting at this dinner, and I, and I said to the people at the dinner, what would it take to move two adults and two children to Berlin? And somebody knew a school, somebody who ran a school, and somebody knew an apartment. And two weeks later, we kind of arrived with three bags, and ostensibly for six months, but uh, we're still here. And then... I've got to say, Berlin's been a kind of, it's been a real haven. It's got an amazing sense of community and, and a sense of society, and people look after one another. But this recent experience has made the streets of Berlin feel a lot less safe than I've ever felt in my life, really. There's a piece in Hypoallergenic, which is this art newspaper. It's called Jewish artist targeted in Germany over pro-Palestine stance. And you mention in this piece that you feel, uh, so you were accused by Stefan Hansel, who is the Hamburg's first anti-Semitism commissioner. He describes the BDS as anti-Semitic. And he also says that you repeatedly defame Israel as an apartheid state and advocate a boycott against Israel, seem to hate Israel, and does not shy away from legitimizing terror against Jews, as you mentioned. Your response to him was, for a commissioner of anti-Semitism, for his first and most vehement and powerful attack to be on a Jew and to put a Jew's life and profession at risk is totally ironic. So how has he done that? How has he put your life and your career at risk? Imagine waking up that morning and every newspaper is calling you a, uh, a vehement anti-Semite. Not even the respect to call you a self-loathing Jew. That's that's much more respectful. Oh, God, no, that's nostalgic. Uh, no, you know, and, and basically a terrorist, like, uh, against Jews, right? Now, my problem with that is, and I don't want to, I don't want to talk too much about this petty bourgeois bureaucrat, because I don't think he's worthy of that much airtime. I really don't. And I think it makes it into a kind of provincial battle. I think this guy's a total schmick who, um, first of all, nobody's quite sure whether he's Jewish or not. He's definitely whether he's converted. Not that I think that, you know, that's not an argument because it implies like there's a kind of pure race. Authentic. Being the Jews, right? Yeah. But, but if he's converted, though, he doesn't come from a family that's had the typical Jewish experience historically. Well, I don't think you can kind of convert into the trauma, like centuries of trauma that Jewish people have experienced from the pogroms down, down to, the, to the Holocaust. I don't think you can convert into that trauma. And I find that kind of very, very problematic. The other thing is, um, what, and the way I responded to him, and it took me a long time, I mean, the international press immediately published, kind of gave me a forum and gave me space to kind of 
uh, you know, rebuff and push back against these like totally libelous um, accusations. Um, a German press was much more difficult. It took about three weeks um, using all my contacts, leaning on the most heavyweight editors of Die Zeit, which is, you know, essentially like, I don't know, the Washington Post or the Times or um, of Germany. Um, Berliner Zeitung, in fact, I did a long interview with them. Um, it was edited, copy edited, due for release and was cancelled five minutes before. So somebody leaned on them. Um, and what's so interesting is to just uh, to, to start getting an understanding of the kind of power structures at play here, right? Um, and the fact is, is that obviously this is not my first experience with being called, uh, I've never been called an anti-Semite. I, I used to be called a self-loathing Jew. But this goes back to kind of 2005. I had a show in New York, actually, at uh, the um, ICP. Um, and it was about Israel and Palestine. And um, and uh, the Anti-Defamation League, actually, um, they sued and they accused ICP of accusing Israel of ethnic cleansing because of the content of my show. Well, I mean, it's documented. Luckily for them, or unluckily for the ADL, you have Israeli historians who have documented ethnic cleansing. Exactly. And I think that's why the charges were dropped. But they, they were, they were uh, at one point, it was um, me facing Ronald Lauder of the Estee Lauder fortune, which is no small amount of money. You can imagine his legal team. But I'm going off-piste. Let's get back to your question, which was? We're talking about how you can't convert into the trauma of, you know, if you're... This isn't... Just to be clear, when we are... When I'm critiquing, at least, Stefan Hansel, who has converted to Judaism, my problem is that he's anti-Semitism explaining anti-Semitism to someone who knows anti-Semitism much more intimately than he does. It's very well and good for him to convert to Judaism. I mean, if he wants to be a religious Jew, of course, that has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. You could be secular. You could believe in God. It didn't matter. But before we move on, I also want to ask you, because you mentioned your mother, and we were talking about anti-Semitism and, and knowing trauma. She had relatives who were killed in the Nazi Holocaust, right? I mean, 90% of my family were killed in the Holocaust, yeah. So maybe Stefan Hensel could like listen to you more about what anti-Semitism is. Not that you're weaponizing it cynically, but... Honestly, I don't give a shit what Stefan Hensel thinks. Stefan Hensel is, is the kind of pimple that points to, you know, this post-adolescent weird German psyche that is trying to process the Holocaust in the most weird of ways, right? And I was sitting with somebody the other night and I said, Hypothetically, let's just do let's let let's just do a kind of thought experiment. If I had to say to every single German, and this is somebody who's lost ninety percent of their family in the Holocaust, you no longer have any guilt, you needn't feel any remorse or any responsibility or culpability for the Holocaust. Okay, and but it did happen. 
but it's not your fault. It happened. Now we we can take one or two paths. We can we can we can conclude two things from an event like that, as traumatic as that. The one is that we need to look after the most vulnerable people on the planet at all times. And those people are not always the same people. Like I mentioned, my grandparents went from Lithuania where they were Jews, they were facing pogroms, their lives were threatened every day. They arrived in South Africa and suddenly they were white people on the full of power with full access to all of the corruption that apartheid South Africa offered, right? I mean, you needed three brain cells to become a wealthy person as a, as a white person in South Africa. Um, and so suddenly they went from vulnerable to positions of power. And I think that happens constantly in history. We need to be looking out for, for the most vulnerable. Right. right? It's, it's never again, not just for Jews in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. It's never again for, as you said, the most vulnerable. Totally. And so, but the other conclusion is, and this is the conclusion that the Stefan Hensels have come to, which is that um, because of the Holocaust, we have to have unconditional support for the nation state of Israel. And my main point is that nation states do not have rights. Nation states are meant to ensure or enshrine the rights of the people that live within those nation states, but not at the cost of people who don't live within those states, right? But this is like pledging allegiance and unconditional love as a parent would to a child to a nation state is not the conclusion we should reach from the Holocaust. It's and it's not only Jews who died in the Holocaust. You know, it's every LGBTQIA plus person. It's the Roma. It is like, People you know, with disabilities. It, it, totally. It is the most vulnerable. And I'm not, I'm not t- trying to undermine the fact that 6 million Jews died, you know, and m- most of my family amongst them. But I'm saying... That should make us all the more vigilant to when we encounter injustice in society, we stand up and we shout loudest. And I just want to tell you one story because I was in Rwanda um, very, very shortly after the genocide there. And I met a remarkable woman uh, called Riva Adler who was interviewing all the Hutu perpetrators of the genocide. And what Reva explained to me, she said, uh, people who've experienced genocide have one of two responses. When they encounter or they see um, an injustice happening, 99% of them will hide under the table because they're so scared of power and they've seen the, 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 the most fierce force of power, right? The 1% who will stand up to that injustice, they will stand on the table and they will shout the loudest. And out of the 250 to 300,000 Jews that arrived from Eastern Europe to South Africa, 99% took full advantage of apartheid, but 1%, and you'll know some of their names, the Joe Slovos, uh, all of Mandela's 
lawyers during the treason trial, uh, L.B. Sachs, some of the biggest heroes of the apartheid struggle were Jews. But it was a handful. And literally, you can, you can name them on, 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 on two hands. Yeah, it reminds me kind of of, you know, with trauma, you can either identify with the abuser and continue the cycle of abuse, or you can identify with the abused and try to stop that abuse from happening to other people. And I think that's, you know, for a lot of people, the takeaway from the Holocaust is, or I don't know for a lot of people, certainly for a lot of the loudest, most powerful people, uh, the takeaway from the Holocaust is they did this to us and we're going to do it to other people who had nothing to do with it. Cause obviously Palestinians had nothing to do with what happened. Um, but I do think that for other people, it really does have a sense of, it gives them a sense of, of justice. And it's precisely because of that experience that they refuse to condone, engage in or condone ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. Like I think it can go in either direction. And you had this interesting, as you were saying, your minestrone soup of identity. I mean, you were someone who comes from a Jewish family who saw and understood, experienced pogroms, the Holocaust. Then you go to South Africa where you see and understand from, not from the bottom, but apartheid. And obviously both of those things, when it comes to the ethnic cleansing element and the apartheid element, are, are things that you see in Palestine. But hang on one second. So there's a couple of uh, ingredients I haven't yet put in the soup, which is one is I was sent from the age of six to a Zionist religious Jewish school. So on a daily basis, I was being fed these beautiful lines like Israel is a land without people for a people without land, right? Um, The Jews historically which we were, have been chased out of every place for centuries. So the only thing that we have to value is education. And we're going to go to the desert and through our ingenuity and our, you know, our brilliance, because we're so educated, we're going to make it bloom, right? So we're going to make the desert bloom as if, as if there was no culture or people or culture or cultivation or and I think uh, 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 or agriculture and I think agriculture is a, a very important point here um, and so what happened to me is when I said to you like at the age of 16 where um, thanks to these kind of my older siblings who started to alert me to kind of what the infrastructure of apartheid meant and because uh, we were told similar, similar things, right? Every day at school, we were told if apartheid ends, um, that that means the demise of the white people, essentially. Um, and it's very much the narrative that all Israelis are told. And here's the final ingredient to drop into the soup, is that I have a beloved sister who has lived in Israel for 40 years, um, uh, is married to a Jewish man who fought in the army, um, has three kids, has a grandchild, all her children fought in the, in the Israeli military, um, 
one of my nephews who was in the special forces. Um, you know, he was even engaged last May in, in, in some form or another. So, um, so when Stefan Hensel calls me an anti-Semite or, 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 or suggests that I, um, I'm suggesting kind of pushing terrorism against Jews, um, does he realize like the, the incredible kind of delicacy, uh, the, the, the delicate kind of um, and very heightened emotional conversations that I have to have, that me and my sister have to have to maintain our relationship. And we have managed to maintain the kind of love of siblings, even though if she didn't know me, she might perceive my actions as a kind of threat to her existence, right? Um, and it's very interesting because um, I've been, you know, I go to Palestine every few months. Um, my sister has three children, a grandchild. They've only been into Palestine, which is, as we know, separated from Israel with a 700-kilometer, 30-foot-high, 4-meter-wide huge concrete you know it's a, it's it's a tsunami literally um they've only been there in uniform and uh and besides kind of you know small interactions in between the intifada back in the day um my nephews and nieces have never really met or really um, establish any meaningful relationship with Palestinians. And this is the difference between Israel and South Africa. And I think it's a very important distinction to be made is that I think South Africa, even though all the rules said we were not allowed to be in the same room, we were allowed to write plays together, we were allowed to make love, to fall in love, to marry and yet we did. We were, you know, we were packed together in the cities and we intermingled. And there was almost a kind of uh, sensuality and a kind of desire mixed into the othering, right? Um, and whereas what's happened in Israel is by erecting this giant wall, what's on the other side of the wall is the worst possible um, enemy that your imagination could conjure up, and it it is it is somebody who is subhuman, whose sole intent is your destruction, who don't who don't who don't who don't love their children like you love your children, who don't love themselves, who don't love life, who don't treasure life, and. It's it's almost like um, it's this flattening out of a Palestinian um, identity, and um, you know, and that goes back to the school books, and you know, there's no there's no acknowledgement of essentially of their existence in 1948, or of 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 a deep rich cultural heritage that they had, and but 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 and sorry to to keep going on, but. 
And I really feel like this is the kind of brilliant mistake that Israel has made. And it's it's the flaw that's going to lead to, let's not call it the demise of Israel. Let's call it the freeing. And I don't know what the country will be called, but it will be free and it will be democratic. And there will be the right of return both for Palestinians and for people like me, because if you ask me, I'm not happy to be living in Germany where I can't get a job and my exhibitions are kind of censored. Um, If you said to me, this place called Israel, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, is like totally democratic. Everybody of any ethnic, religious, or, 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 or racial denomination are equal, I would go there in 10 minutes, really. Um, so I want the right to return as well, right? But what, what the mistake that they made is they flattened out my identity as a Jew, all of our identities as Jews. And my identity is a very, very, very rich cultural one that goes back centuries. But my grandmother spoke Yiddish, to my mother, right? I, my Jewish identity is a very, very full one. I'm a very proud Jew, but that does not rely in any way on my relationship to the state of Israel, nor does it rely on my relationship to the language of Hebrew or to the orthodox rituals of, of uh, the religion. And yet, I have, if I was asked to identify as anything, I mean, obviously from the outside, yeah, white, you know, middle-aged man. But I would say I'm Jewish, very proudly Jewish. And and there's a, there's a word called Yiddishkeit, you must know it. It's, you know, which is like Jewishness in Yiddish. And... I was saying this the other day, like Yiddishkeit has the most wicked sense of humor. I mean, you know, when you look at Larry David walking down the road, like that's Yiddishkeit, right? Very self-deprecating. Yeah, gorgeously self-deprecating and obnoxious and also full of anxiety and fucking depression and all the shit that we inherited, you know, but um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's a gorgeous identity and I, I love it to bits, but it's being stolen from me because the nation state of Israel demands this idea of a kind of um, some kind of solidarity, which means that I have to get rid of all the complexity and my identity gets narrowed down to whether I am unconditionally supportive of a nation state. And that has got nothing to do with my identity. I, fi- I find it such a crude, uh, rude uh, theft of, of, of my history. Yeah, and it's also an anti-Semitic trope that they're perpetuating because this idea that all Jews are this flattened monolith, we all have the same position on Israel, we're all blindly loyal to Israel. I mean, that's what that's something anti-Semites like to say. And then you have Zionists making the same point because they so don't want to have to 
grapple with what Zionism looks like today, they have to pretend criticism of Israel's anti-Semitism, even as they do that, that's built, they're building that on a, an anti-Semitic premise, which presents us as this monolith. Yeah, and I think that argument is, is fast and furiously falling to bits in front of us right now. I think, um, honestly, today I'm like, I really feel full of hope. Although if you look at footage of Jenin, you know, the, it was invaded and it's horrific. And I bet you don't see that in American mainstream media. You know, who would know that the military went into Jenin illegally against United Nations law, right? What brought you to Palestine in the first place? What made you curious? Because there's footage of you, which we can show. And actually, I first heard about you through Issa Amro, who's been on the show. And he was showing footage of various people, himself included, getting attacked or um, harassed by settlers. And then he shows his picture. He goes, this is Adam Bloomberg, who's actually a Jewish artist, which we can show. Maybe while we get that ready, you can set up what brought you there in the first place. I mean, so I've been going to Palestine, uh, uh, you know, for maybe 15 years now, really quite often. And actually, Issa and I have set up an NGO called Artists and Allies Hebron, which is um, because if you go to Ramallah or Lesso Bethlehem, there are artist projects, there's kind of residencies. Hebron, as you know, is a ghost town, right? And... But Hebron is, is like a Petri dish because it, within 15 minutes of walking through the streets of Hebron, you understand the occupation, you understand apartheid, you understand the notion of ethnic cleansing. And it's not, it's not intellectual, it's not ideological, it's not propaganda, you feel it. You know, there are, there are roads that are only for the Jewish settlers. Um, most of whom are now currently in government, literally from the, the settlement in Hebron. Um, uh, and so when I walk there, Isa has to take one road because he's Palestinian. I take another one. He's subject to military law, and whereas every Jew is subject to normal Israeli civil law. I mean, the, the, you know, it's it's it, it doesn't take a genius to to understand that this is apartheid version two. It's, 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 it's like on steroids, right? And then you've got the settlers who are, you know, have you ever seen somebody having a psychotic episode where they feel like they're kind of superhuman and they kind of, like, they scale a building or something like that? It's quite, it's quite an insane thing to watch, but... These settlers really believe that they have God inside them and what they do. And so I was spending a lot of time with Isa and we were doing projects around all the olive trees that are in Hebron. So the olive trees are really, really important. And this is what I was talking about, how agriculture is such an uh, essential part of the debate. Um the olive trees um, in Palestine are, go up to 4,500 years old, right? Imagine that. I mean, imagine that tree that's 3,000 years old that's standing there. How many changes of power that tree's witnessed from the Crusades to the 
to the Ottomans, to the British, to the, you know what I mean? Um, and since 1967, the Jewish settlers have burned down and destroyed over one million of these trees. Now, these are 3,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 year old trees. And I'm not sure if anybody says to me that they feel an emotional, a biblical um, right and a love of a land, whether somebody who genuinely feels that would destroy, willingly destroy its oldest indigenous citizen. And so Issa and I have embarked on a number of projects to somehow protect these trees. And you actually have some images. Should we look at the images of the trees? I mean, if you want, if you want also just to show, you know, because Isa, I mean, I've I've got to say something. I mean, I know it sounds like cliches, but just the fact that Isa gets up in the morning and gets through the day in his house surrounded by the most antagonistic, genocidal, revolting, angry religious settlers, you know, Israeli settlers. I mean, his life is constantly under threat. His mere, like, just waking up in the morning is an act of resistance, really. And I don't know if you can see some of those videos, but... We've shown them because we've had him on, but what we, and we actually had um, someone on to talk about him before he came on, Maya, who worked with him there. But we have some of the videos of these settlers who you're describing. So let's, let's take a look at some of these videos. Just so people get a sense of the vitriol and. You speak English. I'm not. I'm not speaking English. You're Jewish? No, Jewish. Yes, I'm Jewish. Hey, hey. You're doing this with soldiers behind? I'm not Jewish. I'm not Jewish. Oh, really? Really. Uh huh. You know Jewish. Hey, you know what? You don't talk like that. They call you a Nazi? Mm-hmm. Was that the little kid who called you that? Yeah, but look, look, if you just look at all kind of what's going on there, right? You've got a father who's, he's not exactly stopping his kids. This is, and this is the gate between Isa and his neighbor, You've also got the soldier who, like, you know, he, uh, he's got like an M16 or whatever he's got around his shoulder. He's not stopping them. Um, and the one thing that Issa, like, really trained me to do was to, to know that what the settlers do is they push the kids, these pack of kids out. Because if you raise a hand against a minor, somebody who's under 18, now, if I did it, me having a Jewish body, I'd probably get removed or arrested or get my jaw broken or whatever. If a Palestinian did it, they would be, they would be shot on the spot. And there's another video there, I don't know if, you've, if you see it, where, where, I mean, you can just see 
what Isa and his comrades and colleagues and friends have to endure every day. It's just... Um, so, soldiers just standing there. Look at that. I mean, um, you can stop it there because it just gets uh, really. You can see, you know, there's kids spitting in the face of 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 dignified adults who have to. They just have to take it. And you saw that that soldier just didn't stop them. And it's just like, um, the stuff's clear as daylight. This is like me holding my iPhone and just filming. And it was an average day. This is not like, this wasn't a special occasion. This is every single day. Every day. And, and what troubles me is people calling out these settlers as the kind of lunatic fringe. And even like the American politicians who were trying to get uh, Betzalel Smotrich's um, visa taken away so he wouldn't come to America, you know, it's that kind of bad apple argument. No, 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 no. The settlers, the, the settlers are not the lunatic fringe. They are, they are an arm of the government, and it's been it's been that way from '48, but certainly '67. Right. It's it's been it's been absolute policy. We had a Palestinian writer and organizer on last week who was saying that uh, Tamara Alami, her point was that this is not some um, departure. It's not some uh, uh, atypical um, aberration. It's a heightening of it. But it's it's all there and it was built into it and built built, you know, baked into the cake, so to speak. And Absolutely. I actually want to show some quotes that you, you put on your Instagram. But before we do that, I just want to show one more video. This one is of you being kind of pushed by these kids. So then finally the soldier does something. And then no. it looked like, I mean, no, nothing. He pushes the kid back. I mean, and again, if you were not Jewish, he wouldn't have done anything. Exactly. Just so obnoxious and entitled, and they're doing this in front of a soldier. Uh, yeah, no, it's absolute impunity. And not only that, it's, it's, it's collusion. It's in, it's, it's, uh, they're working together, um, you know. Um, so, and that's the, that's the very sad state of affairs. And... I agree with what you were saying with the person who was last there. It's This is not unusual. And I think the problem I have with this idea of like demanding a settler colonial state to arrest and punish settlers for what they did in Huara last week, it th there's a problem with that because what it actually does is it um, it somehow legitimizes the notion of the settler colonial state to say that there are bad people and we can punish them. And in fact, the, 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 you know, they 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 they're the front line of the of, of government policy. 
you know they're just um they're the ugly they're the ugly side of it but it's all it's all happening in the Knesset believe me should we look at some of the images of the uh, olive trees just to um to leave on a more peaceful note yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, i mean the irony is i went with my assistant there and we had an 8 by 10 camera which is one of those giant you know field cameras and so we set up this tripod and you put the cloak over your head and you you know it takes about 45 minutes to kind of frame up one of these pictures um and you have to like go up to the olive tree and take a light reading and touch it and so it's a very tactile kind of sensual process and it looks kind of so gentle and they look so beautiful and 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 tender and lovely but in fact what was going on was what you just saw you know we were constantly being surrounded by these kids and uh who were throwing you know stones and sticks and threatening us um but the point is is i think and just stop on one of these images and just just have a look at that tree i mean that tree i'd say is probably like 1500 years old um it's the most exquisite thing and i think um you know the olive tree is so important in the story because not only is it of totemic importance as a symbol for Palestinian existence and culture, but it's also a, a very uh, important agricultural crop. So the you know the yield is immense every year, and I think the the kind of genocidal destruction of these trees is aimed not only as at destroying the kind of cultural heritage, um, but also destroying the economics. And um, uh, there's actually an Israeli prosecutor because often uh, whether there's an olive tree or not is uh, said to determine whether the land is belongs to a Palestinian or not. And, um, and she referred to them as anchors in the landscape because they they kind of they they such proof and it's for for this reason they they so vulnerable to attack by the settlers you know so what's next for you i mean is there any movement to get your show uncancelled you know i don't think it's my mission in life to um to heal the german society of their of their guilt of their failure to deal with, forget the Holocaust, even colonialism. I mean, that hasn't even been processed, right? And we should also talk about that. There's this, there's this brilliant book. I've actually got it right here. It's, it's, um, it's called White Innocence by somebody called Cla- uh, Claudia Vecca. And this book blew my mind because what she talks about is the complicity of all the other European countries and the Netherlands, which is so squeaky clean and known for like the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Second to Poland, they ship more Jews to the death camps than any other country. And even in 1960, during colonialism, uh, 100,000 people were killed in Indonesia under the Netherlands' colonial regime. So I know I'm going a bit off, but what I'm trying to say is that I think... Europe has a lot of reckoning to do, and there's a lot of wrongs to be made right. And it's not just about the Holocaust. It's really not. 
And they certainly should not be taking out their processing of this on Palestinians. Well, you know, obviously, I mean, like dealing with your guilt by by killing Palestinian children is 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 ludicrous. But it's got so twisted that they're literally, you know, trying to destroy the lives of Jewish people living in Germany. I mean, you know, just as I returned from Hebron, um, it was the celebration or the or the remembrance of Kristallnacht, which is widely known as the beginning of the Holocaust, and it's held on the site of the two oldest synagogues in Berlin. And I went there, and I was holding the sign. Um, I was holding this thing: "Jews against fascism everywhere," right? Which was uh, produced by a kind of the, the Diaspora Alliance. Yeah, and this is, and what happened to me there is. Um, you know, I'm a short little Jew and uh, a big guy, this big fucking German guy with a big beard comes up to me and he's like, Rah! and he's like, what is that sign? And I'm, and he's like, first of all, he's like, why are you here? I said, well, I guess losing 90% of my family in the Holocaust is like the golden ticket for me to be here, right? And then he said, I said, what have you got against the sign? And I was holding, I was like, it says Jews against fascism everywhere. Are you anti-Semitic? He said, no, I'm a Jew. I said, are you a fascist? He said, no. I said, is it the word everywhere that bothers you? And obviously it was the implication that Israel could have fascist elements that worried him the most. And I literally, at that point, I, got, I started being attacked by him I had to run and seek shelter with the German police. Now, for me, it's like, it, it, um, it's so bizarre, like, for a Jewish person to be seeking the protection of the German police is, like, so counter, um, it, it just goes counter to everything that my DNA says, right? And... Um, so the two times I felt most threatened, and I haven't lived the most regular, normal life. Um, I've been to many dangerous places, but the two times I felt most existentially at threat were one in Hebron at the hands of these Jewish settlers, and two is in Berlin, Germany, at the hands of a very right-wing Zionist Jew who wanted both, I think both of those people wanted me dead. Mm. I know we were going to end on a more calming note, uh, note with those, <laughs> no, 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 with those images. But I also had promised that we would, this is equally uncommon, and I'm sorry about those experiences, but I wanted to look at these quotations. I don't want to give it away, but these quotes, these things that you, you put out on Instagram. So let's read this. It says, if I were an Arab leader, I would never sign an agreement with Israel. It is normal. We have taken their country. It is true God promised it to us. But how could that interest them? Our God is not theirs. There has been anti-Semitism, the Nazis, Hitler, Auschwitz. But was that their fault? They see but one thing. We have come and we have stolen their country. Why would they accept that? That's not that shocking of a thing to hear from someone who's critical of Israel. But what is shocking is that that quote comes from Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion. Right the founder of the state of Israel. And 
if you pull up some of the other quotes where he's much more clear. This is another one. Let us not ignore the truth among ourselves. Politically, we are the aggressors and they defend themselves. The country is theirs because they inhabit it, whereas we want to come here and settle down. And in their view, we want to take away their country. Also, David Ben-Gurion. So, you know, like when did the charade start? When did the bullshit begin? Because he was pretty outspoken about the intention, right? So when did the Disney movie begin? Because let's not even turn to the radicals. Let's not turn to the Palestinians. Let's look at the founding father's quotes, right? Maybe Hensel wants to call Ben-Gurion a a toxic anti-Semite. I don't know. And you're also not the only person who's been canceled by Germany and also targeted by Hensel. So Yeah, but check this out. Yeah, tell us about this. I once listened to a podcast by a brilliant journalist who was studying the, the white supremacist movement in America. And she said she only follows the Twitter and the Instagram accounts of the enemy. You know, what's the use of following like all your comrades, right? So I subscribed to Hensel's account and he published this thing, this, this image of Roger Waters, nicht willkommen, not welcome, right? And Roger Waters looking like an absolute Nazi, right? He's in a black coat with a red armband. Now, I looked at this thing and I'm like, hang on a second. Where does this image come from? And I don't know if you've got it, but Roger Waters, uh, he made a film that came out, I think, last year, which, like the original Pink Floyd, The Wall, which was, like, vehemently anti-war and vehemently, you know, acts in in intersectional solidarity. And so George Hensel, I mean, let's face it, the Germans are the best at propaganda. We know that. So what does he do? He takes, like, one image out of this thing. I don't even know if this is legal, what he did depicts the guy as a Nazi, whereas obviously well, there was, there was, uh, it, was part of, it was part of a show. Yeah, that's his character, his fascist character. It's so dishonest of this guy. It's a scathing critique of fascism. It's a villain character. Absolutely. And he's had his show in Frankfurt canceled. That's right. And, and Hensel's doing his best to get his show in Hamburg canceled. But, you know, we're fighting back. Yeah. His father, someone pointed out, which is a good point, Roger Waters' father was killed in Italy by some German tiger tank in World War II. And his songs was describing how he saw the death notification from the king written on gold leaf paper, sad. But if you want to bring this back to history, his father died fighting Nazis. I don't think we need to say more. Yeah. That's it. You've said it. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much for joining. We're going to keep talking about this because these people should not be able to shut you down. Uh, it's more than that. I think um, we need, we've got work to do in Palestine, and yes, they are they are getting in the way of that. Right. That's the other thing. Is it would be nice if I mean, like last week we did speak about pal- we talked about cancellation, but we also because of precisely because of that, I didn't want these cancellation stories to mean because what this does mean is that in some ways we have to fight that stuff, and that lets uh, it's it's not a distraction because it's important, but really we should be fighting what Israel is doing in Palestine. Absolutely. And we have to be doing this double double duty because we have to, it does matter when people are canceled. Yeah. It does matter that this guy wasn't able to get um, on this uh, 
Human Rights Commission because he's called Israel an apartheid state. It matters that Lara Sheehy gets in trouble and they're trying mm-hmm. to put George Washington, you know, they f- get her reviewed and the university reviewed just mm-hmm. for being critical of Israel. But also that's why the second half of the show, I had this woman on, Tamara Alami, because I wanted to make sure we actually talked about what was happening in the pogroms. So your point is well taken. Mm-hmm. And obviously you're fighting this larger thing. It's not, you're not, I mean, just in, in this conversation, you weren't just talking about what happened to you. No. We're talking about what Israel's doing. But let's pay less attention to them and get on with the good work, you know? Yeah. But uh, I'm very grateful for you giving me the platform. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good night. Ciao. Bye. Okay, that was great. So let's bring on our next guest, Bryce Green. Welcome, Bryce. Thanks for having me on, Katie. Of course. Thank you for joining. I've been wanting to have you on for so long. You always have great articles that you write at FAIR, which is one of my favorite publications, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. I used to write there a bunch. And Bryce is a student, writer, organizer, and media critic based in Indianapolis. He is a contributor of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. So a couple of stories I want to talk about with you. One is the Nordstrom Pipeline explosion, because you wrote a piece at FAIR about how there was this no-fly zone when it comes to the media's coverage of Nordstrom. So tell us what you were referring to when you wrote that piece, set that up, and then tell us what we now know. Right. Well, I was talking about the intellectual no-fly zone that the U.S. media had uh, placed over coverage of the Nord Stream pipeline uh, and and the attack and the events surrounding the attack. Uh, What I was looking at was uh, the coverage that really implicated Russia as being behind the attack. You know, the the pipelines were bombed in uh, September. And immediately, the U.S. media ecosystem spun to life and started pushing all these stories about how much, uh, wow, this this is clearly, obviously, a Russian attack. Uh, You know, they they got all these U.S. experts to come and say, well, you know, it was obviously Russia. Russia is the only one who had anything to gain. Uh, But this is, uh, you know, very peculiar especially when you consider that the United States has been one of the leading critics of this pipeline for, you know, the better part of a decade. You know, the Obama administration opposed it. Uh, the Trump administration, uh, they, when they were sanctioning Russia, they, uh, uh, they, they opposed the pipeline. And when the Biden administration came into office, uh, well, Blinken said that one of his top priorities as secretary of state was to ensure that the pipeline did not go forward, did not uh, connect Russian gas to uh, Germany. And so the media seemed to ignore all of these obvious signals that the U.S. was behind the attack or might have been behind the attack. Uh, and all they did was publish the, you know, uh, uh, the, the Russia did it narrative. Right. Um, and th- there were a few exceptions in this media. You know, uh, Tucker Carlson, you know, uh, he's the worst. I mean, he's the worst. But uh uh, he had a pretty good segment on it where he examined the evidence and he uh, looked at uh, the U- the long U.S. history's opposition to this pipeline. And he gave a pretty good assessment. He said, well, you know, uh, could have been the U.S. Well, how did the mainstream media respond to this? Well, you know, the Washington Post, they, you know, they published an article that uh, put Tucker Carlson's name in the. Uh, you know, it's a Cyrillic alphabet. Yeah, let's show and, this and, one. I'll show it right here. Yeah, yeah if, if you could find it, uh, it, it it's, it's insane. They say, like, Russia's very happy about, you know, Tucker Carlson's conspiracy theory about the Nord Stream pipeline attack. Um, 
And of course, if you read the article, they don't even go into the uh, what Tucker was talking about. Right. They talk. They mentioned the statements from Biden. They mentioned the statements from Newland uh, about how before the war they threatened that the pipeline would not go forward if Russia was to uh, in, invade Ukraine. Um, they didn't. They didn't go into any of that. They just said, "Well, you know, uh, Russian state media is repeating this clip and putting it on there. Therefore, it must be false." Uh, it, I mean, it's 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 red scare nonsense. Yeah. But this was re- this really set the tone for how the media was going to uh, uh, going to address this you know major crime. Uh, and you know, we can talk about all the the geopolitical realities that really point to U.S. complicity yeah. in this attack that was completely ignored by the Western press. And it's pretty shocking. Well, let's just, before we do that, which I definitely want to do, let's look at some of these examples. Um, So you have the Tucker Carlson thing, right? You have, I'm just going through, European leaders blame Russian sabotage after Nord Stream explosion. Um, Quoting European leaders without questioning them, of course. And that was what? That was the Washington Post? Yeah, Washington Post. Only Russia had the motivation, the Washington Post claimed even as it reported that the pipeline steepened Europe's independence on Russian natural gas, which many presumably Western officials now say was a grave strategic mistake. Then you have this, extending Russia, competing from advantageous ground. Now, that's an interesting one. I mean, I'm sure some of your viewers and listeners are familiar with this RAND Corporation study. Uh, It's a, a study that was published in 2019, the RAND Corporation, major Pentagon think tank. It's really the uh, one of the, uh, the the brains, the brains of American empire, really. Uh, and th- this report, this was famous. It came up, uh, you know, as the war started, it was famous for suggesting that the United States pour weapons into Ukraine while acknowledging that this could spark a Russian invasion. Well, I mean, this is part of a broader strategic goal of the United States, but uh, this report also included uh, 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 you know, pages about the importance of cutting off Russian natural gas exports to Europe. Uh, now, there is a long history of the United States opposing European independence with respect to its relationship to Russia. I mean, I mean, go go back to the foundation of NATO. The first NATO Secretary uh, General, um, and I'm blanking on his name, uh, but I mean, he described the purpose of NATO as to keep the Americans in. Uh, the Russians out and the Germans down. Uh, and that's really been the U.S. mantra for the the Cold War period and the post-Cold War period. After Germany reunified, uh, you know, they started ramping up their economic power. And, uh, you know, it was pretty clear that if they kept going on the way they were, they might become an independent power center that could threaten U.S. hegemony over Europe that might try to, uh, uh, I mean, look at a map. Europe there and Russia is in Europe. It's only natural for them to come to some sort of rapprochement and uh, deepen economic and, and and political ties. Well, you know, the U.S. doesn't want this. They understand that the Europe Europe is a junior partner in the entire project of American hegemonic empire, and uh, they want to keep that. And so this Nord Stream pipeline was a major way for Europe, uh, Germany specifically, to uh, assert its independence. Uh, remember, this is the Nord Stream 2. The first Nord Stream was completed in, uh, I believe, the early 2010s. I don't have the specific date. But immediately after that, you had the uh, uh, Nord Stream 2 being proposed. And the U.S. was like, well, no, you can't do that. 
and the, the line was always uh, it would increase Russian leverage over Europe. Uh, and that, that's always been the line, and they've uh, you know opposed the pipeline on those grounds for years and years and years. And then we have uh, the the explosion. Now, but what you have here, I mean, like you have this uh, this study it was assessing the potential risks and benefits of various means of overextending and unbalancing Russia, which you know long term U.S. goal. Uh, and one of the main uh, one of the main ways that they said they could hurt Russia was to pour weapons into Ukraine. Russia understands the uh, that Ukraine is a strategic asset on its border. I mean, go back to 2008. Our current CIA director, William Burns, said that, well, you know, if we keep expanding NATO, uh, uh, Russia is going to have a reaction. And uh, this one of the last sentences in that report was that this is a decision that Russia does not want to have to make. But what did the U.S. do? The U.S. pushed it. The U.S. pushed it. The U.S. said uh, uh, we can expand NATO however far we want. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And. Part of this project of overextending Russia included cutting off Europe from Russian natural gas. Russian natural gas. Uh, now, why is Russian natural gas so important to Germany? Well, it's very cheap, and uh, the proximity means that they can get lots of it, lots of lots of Russian natural gas, and it can fuel the German economy. They can have a manufacturing base that's able to compete with, uh, like, on a global scale. Uh, but, you know, during, as this war started and sanctions against Russia started, uh, uh, you know, becoming the de facto language of European foreign policy, well, the German economy started to suffer. Energy prices started to rise. Uh, you know, by August of 2022, uh, I'm reading the Bloomberg report here. It said that uh, in some cases, uh, the European gas for the next month settled Thursday at a record high of 241 euros per megawatt hour, about 11 times higher than usual for this time of year. And then at the same time, you started seeing reports about you know how the German economy was uh, at risk of deindustrialization. I mean, they're not using that word lightly. This is this is uh, the uh, the business press. This is the uh, the Economist. This is Forbes. This is Business Insider. They're all talking about German deindustrialization as a result of you know this Russian gas being cut off, and so uh, it's all part of the same project. And we should understand this as uh, in its context in the world system. Really quickly, again, just going to show some more a reminder. This is Business Insider. The sabotage of gas pipelines were a warning shot from Putin to the West and should brace for more subterfuge. Russia experts warn. And then you point out that basically all these other outlets just serve as kind of stenographers for the intelligence community. Then there's the Tucker Carlson thing that you pointed out. Then we have AP via ABC accused Kremlin and Russian state media of aggressively pushing a baseless conspiracy theory in another effort to split the U.S. and its European allies. And, and this article was widely republished. I mean, it was republished on everywhere from like ABC to it was even republished on Breitbart News. Like they, these things go, they travel far and they set the tone of discussion and understanding for the American public. Right. And everyone, that's a, an easy trick. It's just for, to dismiss people as conspiracy theorists. Uh, people love doing that. So what, so you had this intellectual no-fly zone as you describe it. Then you had, when, then um, Seymour Hirsch comes forward with the report 
And he's smeared as a uh, once reputable journalist. That's one of the ways I've he- I've heard him described uh, today. Actually, uh, some I thought that was very clever, very nice, a way to acknowledge that he was obviously he is reputable and he's esteemed. But I, it was a cute way to get around. Um, it was like a cute backhanded smear. But what does he say? And then what is the latest that we've learned? And how does that uh, comport with what he said happened? All right. So uh, last month, uh, Seymour Hersh publishes a piece on his Substack alleging that uh, the U.S. was indeed behind the Nord Stream pipeline attack. Um, and, you know, he goes into detail about the story about the U.S. collusion with the Norwegian government in this. Um, and, you know, they have a role to play given this uh, uh, entire gas intrigue, this gas and energy intrigue. Um, but he alleged that Joe Biden had ordered this uh, this attack and had ordered the planning for this attack before the Russians even invaded. In fact, this was in uh, fall and winter of 2021. And remember, the Russians invaded in February of 2022. Uh, and so he also alleged that the Biden administration knew that this planning was underway and they understood that this was possible. And this is when you get these statements from Joe Biden and Victoria Newland. I don't know if you have those clips readily available, but uh, Joe Biden, he says, uh, well, you know, uh, America can destroy the, the Nord Stream pipeline. Someone asked him, like, how are you going to stop the pipeline when this is a German project? He said, you know, mark my words, we will be able to do it. And a little bit before that, you had Victoria Newland, who uh uh, and I, I know Ben Norton on his so started playing the the Beethoven dun 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 dun. Whenever you hear <laughs> Victoria right. Newland, because she's such a, I mean, like a the swamp monster of all swamp monsters. Her husband is Robert Kagan, uh, one of the founders of the Project for a New American Century, which went into the Bush administration. You know, she's a uh, the ghouls of the ghouls. Right. But even she said, well, you know, if Russia invades, uh, the Nord Stream pipeline will not go forward. Yeah, we I have. Mean, I actually state, have the video. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. Uh, do you want nice. to see the no, video? Good. Matt Orff did a, a good compilation. Look, we can just watch a couple minutes of it. There will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring an end to it. What? What? How will you? How will you do that? I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Someone blew up Russia's Nord Stream pipeline. I mean, we'd have to conclude without the evidence that it's most likely Russia. Russian sabotage on its own infrastructure. It's a common sense matter. I think it's Putin's way of sending a message. What Putin is saying to us by blowing up his pipeline is, look, I can blow up a pipeline. Everyone knows that Putin did this himself. It's the closest thing to a smoking gun without the direct proof. Yeah, I think logic and common sense will tell you that without without the evidence, evidence, Russia was behind the incident. We can say it for sure. Who sabotaged the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? The Russians. <laughs> I love the certainty and I appreciate the insight. Yeah, there's exactly uh, one country on that list of suspects, Brad. Um, and <laughs> Russia would Russia would be it. It's hard to imagine others with a significant motive, but... Uh, we will bring it into it. Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Who did it? What a mystery. One way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not 
move forward. But it remains unclear who could have been behind the Nord Stream pipeline leaks. Make explicitly clear to anyone involved with constructing this pipeline that the consequences of doing so are catastrophic. Who would do such a thing like this? I mean, that offers tremendous strategic opportunity. We still don't know who caused damage to the natural gas pipelines. The U.S. Secretary of State warned against the pipeline. The Nord Stream pipeline mystery continues. U.S. says they'll do everything to stop the Nord Stream pipeline. We do everything we can. Then I have no idea who is responsible. Kill Nord Stream 2 now. Put an end to it. Use all the tools available. Stop the Nord Stream 2. And let it rust beneath the waves of the Baltic. It's almost inconceivable to think that the U.S. would do it. A member of European Parliament publicly thanked the U.S. for blowing up the pipelines. This pipeline must be stopped. Who would do that and why? According to U.S. government think tank Randcorp, the first step to weaken Russia is to stop Nord Stream 2. So it's a real mystery. Halt Nord Stream 2 to stop Russia. Shut down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Stopping the Nord Stream. Take out Nord Stream 2 forever. Permanently. Ending it permanently. End it once and for all. U.S. must take immediate steps to terminate Nord Stream. Should cancel the Nord Stream pipeline. Absolutely. We should cut it off. We must stop this Nord Stream. We have made clear to the Russians that that pipeline is at risk if they move further into Ukraine. We can't find anybody who'd be the obvious culprit in all of this. When it comes to Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that would bring natural gas from Russia to Germany, it will not happen. It was a, a deliberate act of sabotage. And now the Russians are pumping out disinformation and lies. I want to bring in former CIA director John Brennan. Russia is certainly the most likely suspect. Russia is certainly the likeliest suspect. Russia is most likely behind this. Russia is the likely cause of it. Likelihood that Russia is behind the attacks. Very likely. Russian. Likely, likely Russian. Russian. It is likely that this is an act by Russia. The most likely thing is is in fact the most likely thing. Russia is most likely suspect at this point, according to many. Is Russia? I've heard people I trust saying that it's just probably Russia. Vladimir Putin, the most likely. Russia is likely to blame. I mean, that's totally something Putin would do and then go blame it on someone else. Essentially a scenario of cutting off your nose to spite your face here. Why would Russia bomb its own pipeline? It doesn't seem to make sense if you're thinking in a rational actor scenario, but. Experts agree that Russia is the key suspect. Experts say Russia. Experts point the finger at Russia. Experts pointing their finger at Russia. European leaders are pointing Ordered the finger, finger at, at Russia. Russia. And all fingers pointing at Vladimir Putin. Pointing the finger at Moscow. Pointing the finger at Russia. The Occam's razor points to Russia. Most logical points to Russia. German lawmakers point the finger at Russia. Spain points the finger at Russia. All signs point to Russia. Signs point to Russia, Russia, and Russia. Still kind of seems to me like Occam's razor yeah. still point to Russia's involvement. Russia is a prime suspect. Putin, the prime suspect. This is a not so subtle message from the Russians. Russian sabotage. Russian sabotage. What's happening here is Russian sabotage. Sabotage by the Russians. Sabotage by the Russians. More stable rattle, more intimidation from the Russians. It certainly is. Well, NATO does not call out Russia. This is giving me heart palpitations. I know. It looks like it could have been, had Russia behind it. it looks like it was a, a Russian attack. The attack is right out of Putin's playbook. Putin's playbook. Putin's playbook. Sabotage sounds very part of his playbook. Um, you know, it's 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 essentially owned by the Russians and a Russian company. It'd be hard to protect against self-sabotage. The assessment is Russia was behind it. The Destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, I would bet, was a U.S. action. What evidence do you have of that? Well, first of all, there's direct radar evidence. Wait, Jeff, Jeff, we got to stop there. They it's have not, to leave it there.
Only Russia could be behind the Nord Stream pipeline leaks. Only one answer, Russia. And certainly the suspicions have got to be Russia who's doing this. Got to be. Obviously Russia. It's the obvious explanation that this was done by Russia. It's pretty obvious this is a Russian sabotage operation. Russia says, oh, we had nothing to do with this, but come on. It was probably Russia that blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Oh, I think it did. I'm 99% certain of it. Everything that I'm reading and sensing is that Russia did it. Russian or Russian forces. So um, Russia has done what it frequently does when it is responsible for something, which is make accusations that it was really someone else who did it. Russian sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline marks a point of no return. Poland's prime minister called this the next stage in Russia's war. Anyway, I think you get the point. Good job by yeah. Matt Orfalea. But um, yeah, I, I hadn't seen this one, but I do like Matt's videos. That yeah, was, it's good. Uh, yeah. It was something to behold. Yeah, it really was. So there you had it. I mean, it's just insane watching it. It's like the fact that people didn't even have to come up for a, a reason why they would do the self-sabotage. What's worse is that he, he, the New York Times was even writing about how, uh, well, you know, the motive for uh, why Russia would do this is really unclear. And you know, so did like NPR and Washington. They all acknowledged that the motive wasn't very clear for Russia to bomb its own pipeline. It spent Billions of dollars to complete. But they're this irrational, you know, it's the Russian playbook, apparently. I mean, they really are uh, so, like, um, almost orientalized as these irrational creatures that we can't understand. Right. Well, I don't remember which uh, outlet did this, but the, they said that as a result of this war, the, the Russians are choosing their Asian heritage rather than their uh, European heritage. Wow. Uh, have, you, have you seen that? No, I can't, saying I, the quiet part out loud. I have to find this. Uh, it might not even have been an American paper, but the, the Western orientalization of uh, of Russia. I mean, it's back to McCarthyism. Yeah. I mean, did, did, we, did we learn nothing? Of course not. Of course not. Why am I asking? <laughs> so Cy Hirsch comes out with this story. He's dismissed. It's dismissed as a conspiracy theory. Um, and now what did we just find out? Right. So uh, the New York Times, along with uh, a German paper, they come out with this uh, this very vague, uh, you know, Seymour Hersh's reporting was very detailed, had a, a, lot, a lot of information that uh, it could be checked up on, verified, a lot of leads. Uh, the New York Times, they publish an article saying that, uh, quote, U.S. intelligence officials think that, uh, what was it, quote, pro-Ukrainian groups might have been behind the sabotage. And, you know, for this assessment, they cite intelligence reviewed by U.S. officials uh, who remain anonymous. Uh, <coughs> and they, they came out with this report, and they this was the first time since it's uh, since Seymour Hersh's reporting that the, his reporting was acknowledged by his former paper. He used to work there, uh, you know. Um, and they dismiss it. They say, well, you know, Seymour Hersh alleges this, uh, and they make it seem like he didn't have a source for this. They make it seem like he just made it up out of thin air. They say that he alleges based on earlier statements from the Biden administration. Uh, and then they say that, well, you know, U.S. officials have uh, denied it. They had two paragraphs on it, two paragraphs on it. Uh, but they reported that, the, that uh, you know, German intelligence had found evidence of a, a boat that may have been used to uh, lay the explosives. They don't give any real details. They don't give any uh, explanation. No one goes on the record. Remember, Seymour Hersh's reporting was widely dismissed on the grounds that it had a single anonymous source to go off of. 
well, the New York Times doesn't seem to have a problem with that when the source says exactly what they want to say. When the source says that uh, uh, that it wasn't the U.S., when the source says that it actually might have been Ukraine. Now, uh, the questions as to why the U.S. officials are blaming Ukraine for this, I mean, that's a, that's a complicated, difficult question. They're very quick to point out that Zelensky was not part of it. Right, they keep right. Saying that. They said that Zelensky wasn't part of it, and that there's no evidence that Zelensky or his top lieutenants knew anything about this attack. So uh, I guess it was just some dudes, who, uh, uh, some pro-Ukrainian dudes, who uh, just so happened to have uh, thousands of pounds of explosives and uh, knowledge of one of the most sensitive uh, global infrastructure. I mean, it's 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 dumb. It's dumb. Uh, you know, like jur- journalists, they're not. You know, they might be dumb, but they're not stupid, right? They know what they're doing. A lot of them who are working on this piece, they probably almost certainly are aware of Seymour Hersh's credentials and his reporting on this topic. They know about the long U.S. opposition to the pipeline. They know about the threatening statements. They know that uh, Tony Blinken called the destruction of the pipeline a tremendous opportunity. And they know that Victoria Newland was also cheering it on. They know this, but they choose not to report it. Now, uh, why? Why are they doing that? Why are they misleading the American people in a way that I can only assume is deliberate? If it's not deliberate, then they should be fired because they're not good at their jobs. They're not very smart. But they understand that all this evidence is out here, yet they choose to conceal it from their readers. And uh, this is part of the, you know, the, the whole war. The entire war has been uh, in the background an information war. A, a war of narratives, of perception management, to ensure that Western audiences don't get anything negative about Ukraine uh, until it's just right. <laughs> and now we're in a period where you know, we have the joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs earlier uh, or late last year called for uh, you know maybe it's time to talk about negotiations. Biden and uh, uh, Schultz uh, in Germany just met to talk about you know maybe uh, what's what's the end game here. Uh, you have the Rand Corporation putting out a study saying that, you know, a long drawn out war in Ukraine might not be in our best interest. So you have all of these signals that the U.S. establishment is uh, at least signaling uh, that they're looking at concluding this war. Uh, and then you see these reports about, you know, uh, Ukrainian troop fatigue. And then and then you see this report about the, the Nord Stream pipeline and how that might have been some pro- pro-Ukrainian elements who are involved in it. And to me, it just seems like uh, it's creating this climate where maybe this war is coming to an end and maybe the people in Washington are, uh, in a way, doing a soft launch of the end of this war. Now, this is all you know, obviously speculation. I don't know what they're thinking. No one, we, we can't know what they're thinking. We can only look at the signals. We can only look at the, uh, we can only look at the information we have. Uh, but based on all that information, I mean, it, it does seem like they are throwing Ukraine under the bus. I mean, they, they, there are other reports about how uh, the U.S. officials really don't have any clue what's going on uh, on the ground in Ukraine. They don't they don't have any insight into the decision making uh, power in Ukraine, which I, I find difficult to believe when you consider that this entire war effort is uh, really housed in Washington. I mean, they're providing intelligence, uh, real-time intelligence for targeting, for troop movements, uh, for uh, artillery strikes. I mean, 
This is this is America's war. This is Washington's war. NATO's war. Uh, but uh, I'm sorry. Go go ahead. I, I'm I'm rambling. I, I <laughs> no, you're not. No, not at all. But it's also just. I think it's so important for people to to realize like this is not something you could easily pull off. Like this required incredibly trained divers. Was extremely expensive. The idea that a Ukrainian group would do it without Zelensky knowing is kind of hard to believe. And the idea that Zelensky would do anything without the United States' permission is kind of hard to believe. Yeah, right. Like, uh, I mean, the, the, the tale that's being spun here, I mean, it, it, like you said, it, it, it's, it doesn't really pass the sniff test. I'm not saying it can't be true. Uh, you know, w- weird things happen in, in the world, especially when wars are involved. And especially, especially when information is very limited to the public, when decisions are being made and a lot of it's obscured behind, uh, you know, state secrecy. Oh, uh, well, it's what it's the the health of the state secrecy. Um, but I mean, given the the geopolitical context, the statements from Biden and Newland, and, and given the expressed goals of all the parties involved, the U.S. did it. Uh, theory uh, is far more likely than Ukraine did it uh, or uh, infinitely more likely than the Russia did it. But the key thing to understand is that the media pretends like it's not. Uh, the media pretends like, oh, well, you know, it's just one big mystery and we could never figure it out. I mean, come on. I mean, Seymour Hersh in his interviews, he's been doing a few, uh, not by American mainstream press, mind you, but in European press, uh, in alternative U.S. press. Uh, he did an interview with Mark Ames where he said, uh, uh, I, I think I think Mark asked him, it was like, oh, Cy, how did you find this story? And Seymour Hersh was like, well, I mean, it was the, Biden said he was going to do it. <laughs> he said that we will bring an end to this pipeline. Uh, it doesn't take a, you know, a, a geopolitical expert. It doesn't take a, you know, a, a, a genius to figure out that, hey, well, you know, the U.S. might have had a motivation to act here uh, maybe we should uh, as a serious press report on it no no it doesn't take a gen- it's easy to figure out it's easy to point the fingers um but the media refuses to do it and so that raises questions about how free is our press and if they are free are they serious are they a serious uh, group of journalists um and and when this came out it's interesting uh, only one journalist uh, seemed to care about this in the White House press briefings, um, and that was that was Sam Husseini. He went to the press briefings, asked uh, asked the state uh, State Department spokesperson, "Well, like, what about the what about uh, Seymour Hersh's reporting? Do you think that this is uh, uh, that your denials are credible, given all of this evidence that points into the U.S. direction?" And of course, he said, yes, of course, our denials are credible. You know, we always follow the law. We would never do anything like this. But I mean, no other journalists seem to care. Uh, they, they, they're there. They have access to the same Internet that you and I have access to. They have access to the same facts. They probably know all this stuff, but they choose to keep quiet. They choose not to say anything. They choose not to ask the tough questions of our State Department, Uh for for whatever reason. I mean, you'd have to ask them, but I mean, they probably think they're on the right team. They probably think they're on Team America and that rocking the boat isn't good. They think that this is a war, uh, an anti-fascist war 
that might determine the fate of the Western civilization. Some of them probably do believe that. And so they're not willing to ask the serious questions that is required when you want to hold power accountable. So I wanted to also ask you about another article that you had written. This one is called Facebook Protects Nazis to Protect Ukraine Proxy War. So tell us about what you found there working on that. So as soon as this war started, uh, you could see a lot of uh, a lot of different policy pronouncements by the various digital platforms that really govern our lives. You know, Twitter and Facebook, chief among them. But recently, Facebook took the step of removing the Azov Battalion from their list of you know dangerous organizations. Now, why would the Azov Battalion be on the list of dangerous organizations? You ask. Well. for listening to the Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.